This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, Tim Shepard with the Hack Podcast. You may have seen that some of Australia's ski fields have been struggling this season because of a lack of snow. Some have even had to end the season almost a month earlier than usual. And it's not just bad news for the resorts and everyone who works there. It has flow-on effects to the towns all around them. So what's causing it? And are we going to see it happen more in the future? We'll break that down for you. Also, you might have heard about an iconic Melbourne music venue called The Tote being kept alive after a massive crowdfunding campaign. So what happens to it now? But first... Hack! Coming in here and coming through the system and going to court, your mental health goes downhill, you got nothing or no one. On Triple J. Yeah, look, just a heads up before we begin this one. The story is really serious and it mentions suicide, so some of you might want to tune out for the next five minutes or so. Well, there's been a lot of news about youth crime lately. Crime rates going up, police crackdowns, frustrated communities. But have you ever wondered how young people find themselves on the wrong side of the law? Well, some teenagers in an Australian youth detention centre have actually made a song describing their experience in youth detention and how they ended up there. Our Tassie reporter, April McClellan, has this story. I'm in the car on the highway driving to Ashley Youth Detention Centre. It's in Northern Tassie and I'm going there because they're actually giving me access inside the facility and I've been told that no other journalist has ever gone inside. I'm actually almost there. I can see it in the distance. Around the perimeter is this massive fence, obviously to keep the young people inside. Okay, just turning down that driveway. This is, yeah, it's a bit weird. I've never been past this front sign. Once inside, I meet 16-year-old Noah. My mate passed away last year and um, I started drinking a lot and then I hit the drugs real bad and then I started offending heaps and I had nowhere to sleep. My mum kicked me out. I had to just like steal things just to eat and I was homeless and I had nothing at all and yeah. Noah's not his real name. I can't tell you that for legal reasons but he's one of the young guys I'm chatting with inside the detention centre. The facility houses youth offenders aged 10 to 18, and it's the fifth time Noah's been sent here. Just because we're criminals and you look at us like inmates in here, um, we're not bad people, we are good people, and we can change and go to a better path, and I just want to tell that to everyone out there. Yeah, so kind of like circumstance led you to get in trouble. Like if, if life had been a bit different, maybe it wouldn't have been that way. Yeah. Inside the facility, I also meet Liam, which is not his real name. He tells me his childhood wasn't easy. Well, I didn't really have much. Didn't really want to go to school. I didn't have any role models, so I didn't really know what to do. So I was just all over the show, around the streets, running around with bad people, using drugs and stuff like that. Now, obviously, you've ended up in this youth detention facility. Is this your first time in here? Nah, it's my 24th time. Now your 24th time, do you still kind of feel the same way each time you come in here? Oh, no, not really. I got used to it. I class this as my home, so I'm used to it now. What do you mean by that when you say you class this as your home? Well, I've been coming here for six years and I've spent the greater part of it here, so I've got a better connection with the youth workers than I do my own family, so I call it home. There's been ongoing lockdowns at the centre due to staff shortages. A number of workers have been in isolation because of COVID, others are away due to workplace injury, and some have even been stood down due to allegations of child sex abuse. This has meant on some days, the young people detained at the facility are locked in their room for hours on end. 
But recently, they actually got the opportunity to work on a project creating their own rap song. So when I felt hopeless, I had to stay focused. I was laying in my cell when I wrote this. I was excited to do it, but also nervous around meeting new people and singing in front of people and stuff, because like I said, I've been in here for the last basically six years and I've never been around people in the community and I'm anxious to talk to new people and meet new people and stuff like that. The song's called Diamonds. This place is all about pressure. Can't make diamonds without pressure. <laughs> And Liam reckons this means, just like diamonds are made under pressure, we all face hard things in life. But if you persevere, you'll come out a better person in the end. So it starts off by saying we're invisible, we're like ghosts, we're stuck in the whole chill and cheese on toast. And then it goes from there. And that's about how we're locked in here and I feel that no one can see us or no one cares about us. We're invisible, we're like ghosts, stuck in the whole tool cheese on toast. Trying to make the most of my life, gonna try and, and my... we're just stuck in here every day doing the same stuff, and people don't see that. At the very start of the song, it, it talks about anxiety and it's talking about mental health. Like, is this something you've struggled with yourself personally, especially yeah. since being in here? Yeah, I struggle with depression a lot because I try to. Um, Try to kill myself once or twice a few times while I've been in here because my dad was in jail and my mum was on the drugs and that. The art of rap has given Noah the opportunity to share his life experience and express his ambitions for the future. Yeah, I rapped about being homeless and that and um, want to do better for my mum because she was sick. I was in a bad state and I just wanted to do better for my mum and my family because I was too hooked on the drugs and I just want to numb the pain I didn't want to be here no more. But then I just want to, you know, Claim my act up and be out and do good and get a job and do good for my family. Getting the opportunity to work on a project like this, what was that like? Um, it was pretty good actually. We got all the boys together. We always used to argue and fight and they wouldn't let us together, but then when we got this, bro, we all got along and we were all like, yeah, bro, you can actually rap, you guys are good. Other people don't care about us because we're locked behind here, they just think we're bad people. So yeah, it was great to get our experiences and how we've lived out to the community and to the public. Hack on Triple J. Thank you to April McLennan for that story. And if it raised anything for you, then please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14. Well, I want to talk about this some more. Leanne McLean is Tasmania's Commissioner for Children and Young People, and she's with me now. Thank you for coming on Hack. Oh, and thank you so much for having us on. How important are programs like the one we just heard about for children in detention? Oh, look, like all children and young people, children who are in youth detention do have a right to be heard and they have a right for their views and opinions to be taken seriously. And we talk a lot about youth detention right around the country. It's usually adults talking on behalf of children. Um, what we've been able to do with this program is bring the voices of young people from inside youth detention out into the community in what is a really safe and accessible uh, and creative format for young people, which is through rapping. I mean, are governments in Australia doing enough to rehabilitate young offenders? We just heard about one guy who's, you know, been in detention 24 times. Like, that's a lot. Yeah, look, the short answer is no. 
Um, we have an issue with youth justice right around the country. Um, in many states and territories, the minimum age of criminal responsibility is 10. So we're effectively relying on a criminal justice response um, for the harmful behaviour of young people. And, you know, these young people don't just wake up one morning and decide that today is a good day to um, undertake some harmful behaviour. There is a long history, um, usually, of um, disadvantage through life, uh, a whole range of issues and opportunities where we could have intercepted and supported these young people and their families to do better. So we have a long way to go right around the country, including here in Tasmania, to do things differently. And when it comes to rehabilitation, I mean, how do you balance that? Because obviously the community has an expectation that people be punished for their crimes or removed from the community if they're a danger. So how do you focus on, you know, acting on all of those elements? I think the community uh, want to live in a safe community and, and rightly so. We all want to live in a safe community. So ultimately, uh, we really want to help people who are exhibiting harmful behaviour, especially children, to change that behaviour. What we know about um, the current youth justice system in Tasmania and right around the country is that when we have a criminal justice response, it's not actually working for, to help us change the behaviour of children. And as you heard from one of the young people in the interview, you know, 24 times would not tell us that the current system is working. So the best thing for everybody is if we can um, support families and young people to change their behaviour by having a far more therapeutic response. Response. That is not punishment. There is a difference between punishment and accountability. What we want is to drive accountability and to change the behaviour. How do we go about changing that criminal response to these crimes then? Uh, well, what we need to do is support young people earlier far, far earlier in their lives so they don't get tangled up with the criminal justice system in the first place. And that requires creativity and additional investment in programs from a very early age. And then if escalating behaviours start to emerge in a child's life, there needs to be a range of programs that police can divert to, youth working programs can divert to, to help people change their behaviour, support their mental health. You've heard very clearly from these young people that mental health is an issue and also support things like substance abuse. I mean, in Tasmania, there is no residential facility for drug and alcohol rehabilitation for young people. And so is you this, are li you're is literally this a crying of, out in detention. Is this a failure of governments then? I think right around the country, uh, we need to see governments paying far more attention to supporting behaviour change in young people, supporting uh, ensuring their rights are upheld in doing so, and far less attention um, being focused on the more punitive responses, which we know do not work. They might be politically uh, palatable for in some um areas, but we know they do not work. What we know works are therapeutic responses to helping children change their behaviour. This is Hack on Triple J. You're hearing from Leanne McLean, who's Tasmania's Commissioner for Children and Young People. I do want to ask specifically about the detention centre that our reporter visited, the Ashley Youth Detention Centre. It's been making a lot of headlines. There's reports of ongoing lockdowns with children being locked in cells for 23 hours a day. Surely that can't be good for them. 
Absolutely not. And what we've seen is a decline in the well-being of the young people who have experienced um, those practices for more than a year. So restrictive practices began at the Ashley Youth Detention Centre uh, on the 20th of June last year. So it's been over a year now. They are largely in response to staffing shortages when there are not enough staff on site to be able to open up uh, all doors. Young people remain in their rooms for longer. Um, and what we're also seeing is the staff who are there, who are turning up every day doing an extraordinary job um, under really tough circumstances, are getting very, very tired. So it's it's really a difficult environment. People are trying to recruit, but until we have um, an entirely new approach to supporting young people exhibiting harmful behaviour, um, it's going to be difficult to see that change um, within the current detention environment. And I mean, there's also been an inquiry which has been told shocking stories of abuse in government-run institutions, including the Ashley Centre. So, I mean, why are these children still inside there at this point? Mm, so what we've got at the moment in Tasmania is a situation where the government have agreed that the centre needs to close. The centre was slated for closure in 2024. Um, and then we've seen a slowing of the progress towards that as um, people have waited for a response to a commission of inquiry um, report, which has now been given to the government but won't be made public for some weeks yet. So what we need now is for the government to give it the sense of urgency that it deserves, that a commission of inquiry have told us that it deserves, and really start to make changes for the people who are currently being detained at Ashley. There is no child in a, in detention at Ashley Youth Detention Centre at the moment, right now, who has actually been sentenced to a crime. Every single one of them is on remand. Uh, and we need to be able to have better accommodation options for young people who are not actually sentenced to a crime. Detention is not an alternative accommodation option. It is detention and it should only ever be used as an absolute last resort in certain circumstances. I mean, we are running out of time, but why is there such slow movement on this? I mean, you're talking about these issues and we understand how to fix them, but they never seem to get fixed on time. A part of it, I think, is the young people have told you themselves, you know, they're like ghosts. People, uh, that's how they feel because people are not aware of their view. They're not aware of their life story and their history. So this project, bringing the views of young people out into the community, is really about saying, hey, these are our kids they exist, they are human beings, they're here in our community and they have a right to be heard and here's a way that you can listen. All right, Liam McLean, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Hack. Thanks so much. That was Tasmania's Commissioner for Children and Young People, Leanne McLean, getting a few texts coming in about this one. Steve says the problem is early intervention programs are voluntary, so if young people and families don't take up the support offered, then the behaviour escalates. Aaron also says you're in prison, not school. I don't understand what they want. If they don't want to get treated like inmates, then don't be one. Hack. The more and more the climate warms, the more inconsistencies we're going to see in the ski seasons. On Triple J. Yeah, you might have noticed that it was a really warm winter in parts of Australia this year. And while some of you may have enjoyed the change, it's been bad news for some ski towns and resorts. Because without the colder temperatures, there's less snow. And that means there's nothing for people to ski or snowboard on. People have had to cancel their holidays and thousands of workers have been affected. If you're one of them, let me know. Message in on 0439 757 555. 
Look, it's really got people in the industry worried about whether climate change means that this is the new normal. And Jo Lauder has been looking into this and she's filed this report. We are at such a low altitude, such high temperatures, one and a half degrees of warming, which we ex- have experienced so far, um, or, or almost in Australia, is, is really impactful. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're really motivated to do something about it because we're a, a group of people who are um, passionate and impacted and want to be able to keep skiing in Australia. Sam Quirk's a mad snowboarder and skier, and the group he's talking about is POW, Protect Our Winters. It's a bunch of snow lovers who advocate for climate action. In Australia, we've just had the warmest winter since records began in 1910, and some alpine areas recorded their lowest snow depth in 50 years. The season's been really bad. We were due for one. It's been a few good seasons in a row, uh, generally speaking, but this season's been really poor. It's uh, kind of scary to think that we're going to be experiencing more seasons like this more frequently. I'm just going to say this now. We're talking about how climate change affects the snow industry here because there are obviously drastic impacts to all these alpine ecosystems as well, and that goes without saying. Sam says that the research shows that a warming climate is already having an impact on three important measures for a good snow season. This past century, there has been less snow days on average, less snow depth on average, and less snowfall on average. There's a clear line that is decreasing. You know, we can't attribute one season to climate change just because, just like you can't, you know, attribute one hot day to climate change. But the trends are there. It's it's gotten worse over time. To make up for it, a lot of snow resorts rely on artificial snowmaking. Even in places like Europe, it's being used more to smooth out bad snow seasons. But there's still a limit. Yeah, absolutely. You can't really make snow when it's more than zero degrees. The, the technology gets better and better, but uh, it's there's such a difference between skiing man-made snow and natural snow. And of course, you're right, the more the climate warms, the less snowmaking is going to happen. Uh, and that it'll get to the point where that doesn't matter. It's just too warm for us to be able to have a ski season in Australia. You might be thinking, boo-hoo, who cares that a bunch of rich people can't go to the snow anymore? But there are also lots of regional communities that rely on snow tourism. The winter industry in Australia is multi-billion dollar and employs thousands and thousands of people through not just the primary jobs, but secondary jobs of ones that support, support those. So, you know, from the um, economic standpoint, that's at risk. An example of that is Mount Selwyn. It's a lower altitude snow resort in New South Wales and it got hit badly by the 2020 bushfires. This was their first season back, but they've had to shut early. Just lack of snow. We haven't had the right temperatures to be able to make snow. We haven't got much of a snow fall this season. It just hasn't been a very good snow season, but at least it's not just us struggling. I can You can see a lot of the other resorts are struggling too with the snow. Abby Spackman is one of the resort managers and she told the ABC it's a bummer for everyone there. This one hits close to home for me, literally, because I grew up close to Mount Selwyn and I have a lot of memories from that place. Yeah, there is no snow at all on the front section. I know that at the back there's a little bit of snow, but yeah, it's it's pretty much just grass again. So sad, but um, yeah, we'll be back hopefully next year. Susanna Beckin is a professor of sustainable tourism at Griffith Uni and she's been a contributing author for the IPCC. She's also a skier. She says bad snow seasons have always been part of the business to an extent. They have a threshold where they can sort of stomach one in four bad seasons. 
you know, it's built into the system. Of course, not every winter is consistent in, in a really good season, but if it gets worse than one in four, then it just undermines the viability. Susanna says irregular seasons make it harder for tourists to plan ahead. People, um, especially with the you know, rise of low-cost carriers, where people fly to Japan, for example, um, quite competitively, even economically, and then if you have guaranteed snow, um, that's definitely a risk for the Australian ski industry. And in some ways, it's counterproductive because the carbon footprint is much higher. Just last week, a major report came out that modelled the future of the European snow resorts in a warming climate. There's over 2,000 of them, by the way. It found that even with snowmaking, a quarter of them would have a bad season every second year if the world warms by two degrees. And just on a personal level, how does it make you feel going to those places that you love, those landscapes, and just seeing, like, even within your own lifetime, just just how quickly these changes are coming? Yeah, it's sad. I, I was seriously quite upset and moved this season. It's still sort of lights a, a fire in my belly to do something about it because if the the world acts on climate change in the way that we need to, we can get back to a time where we can see consistency in seasons and get good snowfall and have, um, you know, a really sustainable winter economy here in Australia. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder reporting there with some help from Bernadette Clark. Got a couple of texts coming through. Someone says, I'm a ski instructor at Threadbow, have been since 2016, and this is the worst season that I've seen. Yeah, one that's hitting a lot of people. All right, it's time to move on. Hack. I couldn't fathom Melbourne without the tote. Places like the tote are the reason why a lot of people move to Melbourne. On Triple Jack. When would you consider donating money to save something that was important to you? If you're a massive music fan, you might have seen this amazing news that an iconic live music venue in Melbourne has been kept alive because of public donations. It's called The Tote and it was at risk of being sold off to developers, but thousands of people came together and donated more than $3 million to help save it. Shane Hilton is one of the new owners. We knew that we'd get there in the end because everyone involved from the community to us to The Tote wanted it the tote to stay alive music venue and and the fact that we got there is an amazing testament to the Melbourne music community and the the wider Australian music community that they made it happen. So we're just thrilled. Yeah, clearly a very exciting day. So is this the start of a new movement? Do the people who donated money get anything to show for it other than possibly a tattoo on Shane Hilton's body because he's actually getting some of the donors' names tattooed on his legs? But the new owners also reckon they're going to set up a foundation that will eventually own and protect the building. So for more on this, I've got a Dr. Sam Whiting from UniSA who studies the live music industry. Sam, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, Tim. Look, did you ever think that this idea would ever pay off? I actually, I'm not surprised. I think there's been a lot of passion and a lot of publicity and support for this campaign from the get-go. And it, it is awesome to see the community rally like this, but I also think it, it sets a very interesting precedent in terms of putting such an iconic venue into a, a charitable trust in the way that um, the Last Chance crew were proposing. Have we ever seen anything done like this before, whether it be in Australia or overseas? Not in Australia. In the UK, only in the last few years, there's been this big movement pushed by a charity called the Music Venue Trust, which is a similar sort of model, although it's a little more radical. Basically, there was 
uh, a push to save a lot of grassroots music venues in the UK in the same way that there has been in Australia. But the way that that organisation has gone about it is by crowdsourcing funding so that they can purchase the freeholds to those venues and then manage them as not-for-profits in trust. So um, rather than those uh, venues continuing to offer operate as for-profit enterprises basically they've kind of almost socialized the risk of running grassroots music venues because it's it's all based on this premise that sure the bar's making money as a commercial institution but live music's a public good uh, it's a cultural institution and so we should value it and support it in that way and when you socialize that risk and you sort of remove rent as a, as a sort of uh, overhead and it's usually quite a substantial one you can run those venues in perpetuity as not-for-profits so we do have a precedent overseas in that music venue trust movement wow. but in Australia we don't have the same sort of precedent so it's really interesting uh, to see what might happen next I mean 12,000 people gave money to help save the venue but they're not really, you know, investors or anything like that. Like they're not going to get any money back, are they? Yeah, and I think that that's where, as as much of a celebration as this is, I think there's a little bit of a perversion of charity happening here, and also a bit of a policy failure. Like government has been really nowhere to be seen on this issue. Yarra City Council and the state government could have stepped in or provided some support. But also I think as great it is that the community stepped up like this, uh, I really, I'm a bit concerned that it sets a precedent for the community having to bail out what could be seen as poor business practices on the part of the previous owners. You know, um, that $6.65 million price tag, that's, that's a pretty hefty sum. And no doubt COVID, you know, contributed a fair bit to that. But I guess the question I'd be asking is, do we really want the community to be bailing out businesses like this in future? Or do we want to sort of see them as more public assets, public goods, and be pushing our governments and, you know, other stakeholders to kind of intervene before it gets to that point? When you start using charity and private philanthropy to subsidise stuff like art and culture, it tends to push those art forms that are popular with, you know, wealthy investors or private individuals with a lot of kind of disposable income, it tends to sort of push those art forms. This is Hack, I'm Tim Shepard and I'm chatting with Dr. Sam Whiting, who's an expert in live music. After a $3 million crowdfunding campaign saw an iconic music venue in Melbourne saved, I mean, I want to ask about the new owners. I mean, are they in a difficult position now because they've also had to put their own money into it to keep the total alive? We don't know how much that is, but it obviously is a mix of community funding and their own money. So what does it mean for them? Yeah, I'm really interested to see how the trust is going to operate if basically the freehold for that property is going to be managed um, by that community trust. And then if the venue is going to be run as a commercial entity, I, I, I assume that's probably what's most likely if they've sunk a lot of capital into purchasing uh, the building and that business, they probably want to recruit some of those losses. So they probably want to be running the tote as a commercial business, but the freehold being managed in trust. That would set a really interesting precedent. And it'd be interesting to see how the trustees, who they're going to be, are they going to be appointed? Like who's going to be managing this iconic space going forward? It's all very experimental and very exciting, I think. Um, And I'm hoping that it sets a bit of a precedent for the way we might be able to manage our grassroots music venues going forward because they do struggle. It is hard to make 
money out of this business. I'm also hoping that this sort of model might mean there's more money for musicians because without having to pay rent and those high overheads, I'm hoping that those businesses will be able to share profit and that more money will go into the pockets of musicians going forward. Do you think this idea of public fundraising and a campaign actually benefited the sellers of the venue by allowing them to see how much had been donated or whether that uh, amount was increasing and then that helped them <coughs> during negotiations? Look, that's a really good point. I mean, the initial, the price tag was clear from the outset. So the $3 million fundraising campaign was trying to match a predetermined price tag. But, you know, there was some controversy when the campaign reached that threshold, but then the current owners had the property revalued and they said, oh, actually, it's worth a little bit more. There's a bit of a shortfall here. It definitely didn't didn't hurt them. I think the current owners have done rather well, which is why, you know, I see it as a little bit of a perversion of the goodwill of the community. Do you think if there was more of these types of crowdfunding campaigns that we may need the government to step in and maybe regulate them? Because I'm wondering whether they could be taken advantage of by people with bad intentions who maybe take the money and then buy a venue, but then sell it and keep the money or run off with it. Or is that a concern to you? Yeah, I think that's definitely a concern. And this is like, I don't want to be you know, raining on anyone's parade, but I think you've raised a really good point there. Like the goodwill of the community, especially when it comes to the live music scene, seems to know no bounds. Like the $3 million is, is, is the biggest amount of money ever raised for live music on Possible, that platform. So I don't want to see that goodwill exploited. I want to make sure that communities can, can continue to support live music but without, you know, extortion or any sort of exploitation taking place. So I think it's this is a really exciting experimental precedent, but we also have to be mindful of how it could be misused or abused in future. All right, some very important questions that we still need answers to, but thank you so much, Sam Whiting, for coming on Hack. Thank you, Tim. That's all we have time for on the Hack podcast. I'll catch you tomorrow for The Shake Up. Hack on Triple Jack.